So before we get to Revelation 22, which of course is the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, I want to read some notes that I was able to make a couple of days ago and just further discuss New Jerusalem first of all and say this, that its total length or its total dimension or its total measurements, if you were to lay it flat on the ground, is around four and a half thousand miles. And I worked out maybe half an hour ago that if you were to jump on a plane and fly from London to Dallas, you've done it. If you were to jump on a plane and fly from New Zealand to Indonesia, you've done it. If you were to jump on a plane and fly from New York to Los Angeles and then turn around and go back, say, two-thirds of the way, you've done it. It's pretty big. Also keep in mind this, that during the New Earth, people are going to populate the New Earth very quickly. On top of that, the New Earth is going to be smaller than the current Earth, but I'll come back to that shortly. If we think about New Jerusalem in the sense of it coming down from heaven, or we think about the Old Testament like Jacob's ladder, heaven to earth or heaven or earth to heaven, you get some idea. Or if you think about, for example, John chapter 1, 51, where Christ speaks about the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Or if you think about Revelation 6, 8, hell coming from beneath to the earth. You get some idea, I think, as to how heaven and earth meet. And I'll come back and further elaborate that shortly. Revelation speaks about seven churches. Revelation speaks about seven spirits. Revelation speaks about seven golden candlesticks. Revelation speaks about seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches. Revelation speaks about seven candlesticks, which are, of course, the seven churches. Revelation speaks about also seven stars being in his, Jesus' hand, his right hand to be precise, and the word of God in his mouth. So you've got seven churches, seven spirits, seven golden candlesticks, seven stars in his right hand, seven stars being the seven angels which are assigned to the seven churches, and seven candlesticks being the seven churches. This book is loaded with numbers. Chapter 2, verse 7 speaks about the tree of life. Now, if you think about Genesis chapter 2, it speaks about the tree of life the first time around. And here, the second chapter of the last book, like paralleling the uh, second chapter of the first book, the tree of life returns. And from Revelation 2, 7, the promise has been made that whoever becomes an overcomer, like whoever gets saved, will take of the tree of life. And I'll come back and further discuss that shortly. Chapter 2, verse 11. The overcomers, again, those that are born again, are not hurt or affected by the second death. A promise there to eternal security. 2.17. Overcomers, again, are promised to eat of the hidden manna, which is perhaps similar to, again, the tree of life found in chapter 2, verse 7. 2.26. Overcomers, those that get saved probably during the tribulation, are going to rule over the nations on the new earth. Now, for those of us which are saved today, we are going to live in New Jerusalem, which comes down, like I say, from heaven and either hovers over the new earth or lands on the new earth. The jury is out as to which will be the correct interpretation. So when we think about communion, which we will take shortly, when we break the bread, we do so to commemorate Christ's death on the cross. Therefore, I think the tree of life found in chapter 2, verse 7, and also 22, which I'll get to shortly, is a commemoration 
of the creation of the world. We break bread to remember what Christ has done for us. And I think those that arrive in eternity, those that go into the millennial reign and also into eternity, would have to eat of the tree of life to commemorate creation and also to somehow receive everlasting life. And I will discuss that shortly. Chapter 3, verse 12 speaks about overcomers being made pillars in the temple of the Lord. Now, if you go back to the accounts or the analogy I gave last week concerning Jacob laying literal stones on his journey through life, and those stones were pictures, or those stones were laid in anticipation of the eventual temple, a literal building. Fast forward to the New Testament, Christ would build his church on the apostles. And I gave the account last week, and also during my last video, that uh, Simon Peter, Cephas, is a stone, is a rock, is a pebble. He built his church on the apostles. He built his church on the apostles and on the prophets. But the promise from 3.12 has been made to those that are overcomers, how he's going to build on such people during the uh, temple on the new earth. Or put it this way, most of what you read in Revelation when it comes to he that overcomes, chapters 2, chapters 3, is specifically aimed at those that will be born or those that will be saved during the tribulation. The church, the body of Christ, isn't explicitly mentioned in reference to the new earth. Like I say, we get new Jerusalem, whereas those that get saved in the tribulation are going to be on the new earth. And the Jews, those that were saved, going right back to the Old Testament, are going to rule and reign with Christ on the new earth. Also from 3.12, Christ will write his new name on us. There's a picture of ownership. Chapter 3.14, or chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, speak about lukewarmness, a deadly thing which I will further discuss probably during our summer outreach. If you think about chapter 3, verse 14 to 20, I will spew out of my mouth. The best way to probably cross-reference that would be to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but no time to do that this morning. Chapter 4, verse 4, speaks about 24 elders seated on 24 seats, not yet thrones, wearing crowns of gold, picturing uh, kings on the new earth, and also New Jerusalem to some extent. Now, because the 24 elders picture Jacob's sons and also the apostles, the apostles being Jews and Jacob's sons being Jews, get the best of both worlds, meaning this, that the apostles are going to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 20 speaks about such, and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So the apostles are a unique group of people they are going to be on the earth and also in new jerusalem and also come back and discuss that further shortly chapter 4 verse 7 speaks about four beasts cherubims or seraphims and they cover their eyes they cover their feet because they're in the presence of holiness chapter 5 verse 1 speaks about a book with seven seals and also from 5 6 the lamb being christ of course is pictured he's described as having Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Going back to chapter one, and I spoke about the seven spirits of the Lord or the seven spirits of God. And most people take you to uh, Isaiah 11 for the cross reference. I'm not overly sure about that, but I won't go back over that ground again. This book found in chapter five is removed out of God the Father's right hand. Again, the attention to detail is quite remarkable. Not his left hand, but his right hand. And only Jesus Christ has the authority to do so. 
chapter 5 verse 10 a promise has been made for the redeemed to reign on the new earth for 1000 years and yet you can lose that you can lose your i won't say right but you can lose your privilege to rule and reign with the lord jesus christ if you live after the flesh and never repent of such check out first corinthians chapter 6 9 and beyond if you get a chance chapter 6 verse 2 four horsemen are pictured and they are going to be sent to do great destruction to the earth the four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to be a reverse of the four cherubims you have two strands in script you have the good and the bad you have for example abel back in the old testament being a good man killed by uh, cain his brother you've got abel as a type of christ and cain as a type of the devil the devil indirectly killed christ Of course, Christ came to die for the sins of the world. John chapter 10 makes it very clear that he had the ability to lay his life down and to take it up again. Nobody forced Christ to go to the cross. He wasn't taken by surprise, you understand. But my point is this. Every uh, good guy in the Old Testament is a type of a good guy in the New Testament being Christ. And every bad guy in the Old Testament is a type of the bad guy in the New Testament being the Antichrist. 6 uh, 14 is the first direct mention to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the main theme of the entire Bible is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, verse 1 speaks about four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Now, over the last few years, this doctrine has returned concerning the flat earth belief, which we think is a Jesuit doctrine, because people take a verse such as this and say well if there's four corners then the earth must be flat no it's a metaphorical description uh, you think of northeast southwest or you think of the uh, royal navy or the british army or the royal air force stationed on the four corners of the earth there aren't literal four corners do you understand it's metaphorical language it's hyperbole language it's not to be taken literally 7, 4 to 8 speaks about the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are going to produce 144,000 Jewish male evangelists, not Jehovah's Witnesses, Jews, God's beloved people. By this time in Revelation, we read about seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues, and the term or the description or the reference to plagues is also going to find its way at the end. Of Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 1 speaks about a blessing. Revelation chapter 1 starts with a promise, a blessing to anyone who reads and believes. Revelation 22 concludes with a curse if you add or subtract from the Word of God. Revelation 9 1 to 2 speaks about a key opening the pits. Not necessarily hell itself, more likely in reference to perhaps Tarsus or Sheol, spoken of many times back in the Old Testament. And once that pit has been unopened, out come locusts, demons, devils, call them what you will, and their king is mentioned in verse 11 from uh, Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, speaks about 12 thunders being heard by John, and yet he wasn't allowed to tell you what he heard, which is somewhat reminiscent to what Paul would tell you over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And my next project, as you know, is to go through 2 Corinthians, all 13 chapters, and Paul would tell you 
from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 that he would see things that he couldn't tell you about, or he wasn't allowed to tell you what he could see or hear. He was restricted, like need to know. And yet, if you go online, if you look on YouTube, for example, concerning people that have claimed to have gone to heaven and back, seen this and that, they're very articulate as to what they have seen and heard. And yet, Paul was told not to reveal what he would see and hear. 11.7, the beast being the Antichrist comes out or comes up out of the bottomless pit. Going back to my earlier comments from chapter 6.8, how hell comes up from beneath and the dead are going to be dragged around the earth. A very disturbing thought. But here, the beast, the Antichrist, comes out of the bottomless pit. The beast is Satan manifest in the flesh. Christ is God manifest in the flesh. There's so much you can get from the scripture if you just take the time to read it and believe it. 11.15, the second direct mention of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which again is the main theme of the scripture. The main theme of the scripture is about a king and his kingdom. And if you're saved, you are his subjects. If you are saved, you're going to rule and reign with him. On the new earth, if you get saved in the tribulation or new Jerusalem, if you get saved today in the church age. 1119, a temple has been seen or the temple has been pictured, no doubt, up in the third heaven. And inside the temple, third heaven, is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven, not on the earth. There's been much talk over the years about the Ark of the Covenant being buried in the earth. They made a movie some years ago called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that movie obviously was all about the uh, missing covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, so on and so forth. But scripture says, 1119, how the Ark of the Covenant, or if, you're, if you've got a King James Bible, the Ark of the Testament is pictured up in a third heaven. Chapter 12, verse 3, Satan has seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. Thirteen one, the beast, being the Antichrist, of course, has seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. So he has slightly more than the devil. 16.13, you've got three unclean spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Again, you've got this reverse order. You've got Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. Here you've got the unholy Trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. 17.8 speaks about the book of life, which I will probably have to speak about next Sunday now. And the book of life from 17.8 speaks about those that get caught up with uh, Mystery Babylon and sink, if you will, with uh, Mystery Babylon like those would do on Titanic. And the point from 17.8 is that those people were never saved to begin with. And I guess a good cross-reference for Revelation 17.8, if you get the time, would be to go to Matthew 7.21 to 23. But no time to further discuss that this morning. 17.10 to 11, you've got eight kings, then seven kings. Now, it would appear, I think from memory, uh, Revelation uh, Revelation chapter 13, how the Antichrist is going to be wounded. And it would appear that he dies and is somehow uh, somehow resurrected, which of course is a mockery of Christ's resurrection. Or if you think of the Freemasons, they make quite a commotion about uh, 
Hiram Abbath, an Old Testament uh, character who they believe was a friend of Solomon and he died. And according to Freemasonry, he was resurrected. It's bogus, it's fallacious, it's pernicious, but it's taught. It's held by many Freemasons. Eight kings, then it's seven kings because the Antichrist dies and is somehow resurrected. 17, 12, you've got ten horns, which are ten kings. Now, it would appear to me during the tribulation that the earth is going to be shrunk. And I showed you that from, I think it's chapter 14, memory, which speaks about every island evaporating, sinking, if you will. Britain is an island. Uh, there are many islands around the world. And once, the, once those islands disappear, people obviously disappear with such islands. In fact, most of the earth, I think 70% of the earth is water. But during the tribulation, 10 horns, 10 kings are going to rule the earth. Now, of course, 10 is a number of the Gentiles. At present, we have on planet Earth, let's see now, we've got the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. And those five nations dominate the world. America, Britain, France, China and Russia. I think that's correct. They are the five permanent members on the UN Security Council. And those five countries, Britain, America, France, China and Russia, have nuclear weapons. That's why they are so powerful. In fact, there was a report which came out, I think, three or four years ago, that during the Falklands War, Mrs. Thatcher sent quite a armada down to the Falklands to retake the island. And of course, you know what happened. But what wasn't known at the time, until maybe three or four years ago, that Mrs. Thatcher ordered a nuclear submarine down to the Falklands with nuclear weapons on board. And of course, you know what would have happened had the island not been able to be reclaimed by the Brits or had the Argentinians sunk the entire British uh, naval fleet, then I think it's quite fair to say that number 10 would have ordered that nuclear submarine to fire nuclear weapons at Argentina. And it would have been an absolute bloodshed, absolute bloodbath. That's the ultimate deterrent that those five, country, uh, those five countries are able to fall back on, if you will. But fast forward to the tribulation, 10 kings are going to dominate the world. 18.4-8, you have a solemn warning, a solemn warning to flee from Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, which if I was to cross-reference, I would suggest you go to Revelation 22.18-19. Time after time, scripture makes it very clear that there are consequences, and that's why you were told so clearly over what, four verses, 18.4-8, to come out from her, my people, lest ye be a partaker of a deeds, a plague, so on and so forth. 18.23, which I think I slightly missed some weeks ago, speaks about a candle. Now, if you think of the Catholic Church, they love their candles. If you think of the Greek Orthodox Church, they love their candles. If you think of the Russian Orthodox Church, they love their candles. And it came to me last night that 18.23 is probably a veiled prophecy or a prediction concerning Rome, because if you were to sit down with a nun or a priest, they would have you believe that they had been married to Jesus. Such a course is false. 1911 is our third direct statement concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 20, verse 3, Satan is finally cast into the bottomless pit. Going back to uh, chapter 9 and 13, concerning the Antichrist coming up out of such a place. Also, 
Satan going into the bottomless pits for a thousand years. And note, he doesn't burn up. He's not annihilated. If you were to cross-reference Revelation 23 with Acts 1.25, you read about Judas Iscariot going to his own place. And some people think that Judas Iscariot is going to be the Antichrist. I'm not overly sure. I made the case, did I not, some weeks ago, that what's more likely is that the spirit that would take over Judas Iscariot will take over the Antichrist. Revelation 28, the nations are able to gather from the four quarters of the earth, going back to north, east, south, west. Discard, please, this flat earth notion. It's simply a metaphor to describe that the earth is uh, mapped out, if you will, with four points, north, east, south, west. Or if you think of the term news, like what's on the news, north, east, west, south, you get the idea. 21 verse 10 speaks about John being taken up to a high mountain. And this also came to me a couple of nights ago that it could be that what John was shown up on this high mountain, he was either taken to perhaps Sinai, where Moses got the Ten Commandments, or he was either taken up to Calvary, where our Saviour died for our sins. 21 verse 12 speaks about 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 stones, 12 pearls. This is the book of books when it comes to numerology. And finally, 21, 24, the nations are spoken of as being saved. And they are on the new earth. So, 23 minutes or thereabouts of me needing to just recap as to where we are thus far. And let's start today, if we may, from Revelation 22. Look at verse 1, please. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. 21 verse 1 speaks about the sea passing away. Every ocean on the face of the earth will disappear when we go into eternity. In fact, it will probably disappear as we go towards the end of the millennium. And I want to further come back and discuss that shortly. But here, 22.1, John has been shown a pure river of water of life. You think of that account from John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, and she's thinking that he's talking about, or she thinks he is speaking about literal water, which goes back to letterism. And you think of the Catholic Church, they are very uh, prone to take uh, verses literally, like, eat my flesh, drink my blood, John chapter 6. But of course, he wasn't speaking about literal water from uh, John chapter 4. He wasn't speaking about literal flesh and literal uh, blood from John chapter 6. He was going to tell you from John chapter 6, as a quick footnote, that these words are spiritual. The flesh profits nothing. He's speaking, once again, in hyperbole terms, extreme language, metaphorical language, call it what you will. He's not speaking in literal uh, terms, if you will. If you were to eat his flesh, it wouldn't help you. If you were to drink his blood, it wouldn't help you. If you were to get your hands on some water, like over in John chapter 4, you'd be thirsty maybe two or three hours later. He wants you to drill deeper into his meanings as to what he is talking about. But 22.1, you've got this river, not an ocean, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, 
As I work my way through chapter 22, and I think it's fair to say it'll be a two-part message now to complete this chapter, John is going to speak about New Jerusalem and the New Earth. And if you're not careful, you will get confused as to which he is speaking about. For example, if you go back to the Old Testament, if you think about Daniel, he speaks about the great white throne judgment. He speaks about the devil present. He speaks about the tribulation. He speaks about the millennium. He speaks about eternity. And if you're not careful, you get so confused because the Old Testament prophets, when they were shown what they were shown, weren't able to delineate between the church age, the New Testament, or the church age, tribulation, tribulation, millennium, and eternity, because the church age, of course, wasn't revealed to them. So take your time as you work your way through the last chapter, the last book of the Bible. Look at verse 2 from 22. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded a fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now I've spent the last two or three days trying to grapple, trying to really get to the bottom of this tree of life reappearing on the scene. Genesis chapter 2, it's spoken about for the first time. Genesis chapter 3, they take of the tree, and of course, you know, the rest, they fall, and as a result, we all fall. After Genesis chapter 3, it's not mentioned again until Revelation chapter 2. So the tree of life has now reappeared, and it's going to be offering fruit every month. Now, there are 12 months in the year, and I think this, and bear with me now, I think during the new earth, you're going to have 12 continents. At present, we have seven continents. And I think not only would the new earth be smaller than it currently is, and I've already made the case as to why that would be, but I think you're going to go from seven continents now to 12 continents during the uh, millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and quite possibly into eternity. And I think on top of that, that those that get saved, Matthew 24, Go up to meet the king, Matthew 25, and those that are saved go into the millennium, of course, and they go in retaining their identities. You could be a Brit, you could be a Spaniard, you could be an American, anyone, anywhere, doesn't matter. But the point is this, you A, retain your identity, and B, you are going to be somehow put into a particular boundary, a particular continent. It could be, don't quote me now, but it could be that... During the New Earth, you have the Americas, perhaps, but much smaller. You'll have uh, Europe, but much smaller. You'll have uh, Asia, but much smaller. And add some more continents, and you get 12. And I think those 12 continents are going to pretty much take of the Tree of Life. Let's read it again, 22-2. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the Tree of Life. Genesis chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 22, which bear 12 manner of fruits, 12 different types of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing of the nations. And that word healing means therapeutic. But ask yourself this, why would these nations need to be healed? Well, it could just be that the stain of original sin continues on for a little longer going back to my earlier comments that 22 will discuss 
Millennium 22 will discuss eternity, and just a verse or two difference will delineate between the two. Look at verse 3, please. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. So the curse has been done away with. Verse 3, you've got the throne of God, partly pictured up in the third heaven, partly pictured in New Jerusalem, partly pictured on the new earth. You see my point? One verse, and you get three parts to eternity. In his servants, they shall serve him, or his servants, they shall serve him. Verse 4, and they shall see his face. It's got to be in reference to God the Father. Matthew chapter 5 speaks about those that are pure in heart will see God. And I think that's in reference to God the Father. First Timothy chapter 6 speaks about no one alive, no one yet seeing God the Father, because God the Father hasn't yet revealed himself to anyone. Every reference in scripture, when man came into the presence of deity, he saw Jesus Christ. That's my opinion. But here it's all going to change. And they shall see his face, God the Father, and his name shall be in their foreheads, like uh, Revelation 14, concerning the 144,000. It's a picture there of ownership. It's also a picture there of intimacy. Verse 5, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, now the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So there's no sun, there's no moon for new Jerusalem, but there's going to be a sun and a moon for the new earth. It's important that I make that clear. No night there, no need of a candle, now the light of the sun. Why? For the Lord God giveth them light, triune God, and they shall reign forever and ever. In reference, of course, to... The new earth, in reference, of course, to New Jerusalem, in reference, of course, to eternity. Verse 6, and he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to, to show unto servants the things which must shortly be done. Holy prophets, Old Testament. This book, being Revelation, is a very Jewish book. In fact, a lot of Jewish people that don't believe in Jesus, when they read Revelation, are shocked. Because it's very Jewish, not only in its style, like the candlesticks, like the menorah, but in the way that it complements Daniel and how Daniel complements Revelation. Verse 7, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So it starts off with a promise. It starts off with a blessing to those that read it, hear it, and of course, believe it. But like Genesis chapter 50, it ends with a coffin or like Malachi chapter 4 it ends with a curse and here this book will end with a potential loss of your part in the holy city verse 19 and receiving plagues verse 18 if you add to these words or subtract from these words and I will further discuss that next Sunday but the blessing once again verse 7 has been promised to those that keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Look at verse 8, please. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. When I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. It's a throwback to Daniel chapter 2, I think it is, from memory, when Daniel comes into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel has been able to predict future events like Muhammad could never do. And Nebuchadnezzar is so overcome 
with Daniel's anointing, that he falls down at the feet of Daniel. And Daniel doesn't correct him, unlike here. And some chapters later, Daniel is thrown into the fiery furnace because the Lord will not share his glory with anyone else. And I, John, saw these things, verse 8, and heard them. He's going to see them, he's going to hear them. But unlike Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, he's going to tell you what he has seen. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Now, it's kind of understandable. If you think about Joshua, when he's about to go into battle and he sees this man walking towards him with a sword and he says, are you for us or against us? And he says, uh, take off your shoes. I'm the commander. I'm the captain of the Lord. And Joshua is flat on his face because he knows that he's in the presence of the angel of the Lord. So it's understandable that John would collapse like we're reading about here, like Cornelius would do from Acts chapter 10. But it's not the done thing. Verse 9. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servants, and of thy brethren of prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Now the Pope wouldn't say that. Many televangelists wouldn't say that. In fact, a lot of televangelists, a lot of prophets, or so-called prophets, teachers so-called, are quite happy for people to bow down and worship them. But here... This angel from 8 and 9 is quite likely to be Daniel because Daniel wrote Daniel, of course. And we know from, I think it's Matthew 22, from memory that when we get into glory, when uh, we arrive in eternity, we are like the angels. We are angel-like. In fact, 1 John chapter 3 says that we are the sons of God. And of course, if you go back to Job, the sons of God are angels. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God are angels. So Daniel has been changed. He's been glorified. And I think verses 8 and verse 9 are speaking about Daniel. Spoken of as an angel, latter part of verse 8. And he's rebuked for worshipping an angel, which should be a wake-up call to the Mormons who worship Moroni. It should be a wake-up call to the Muslims who worship Muhammad via Gabriel. See thou do it not, verse 9. Why? For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets. He's saying this. He's saying, John, I'm a Jew like you. John, I wrote a book in the Old Testament called Daniel, and you wrote several books in the New Testament, and this book that we're looking at this morning, being Revelation, puts us in the same camp. On top of that, you are a prophet, John. I was a prophet back in the Old Testament. So he calls himself one of his brethren. He calls himself one of the prophets, which also puts uh, John's writing in the same category as the Old Testament books. And of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And I will close in that verse and just say this for the next couple of minutes, that what John needed to do, what I need to do, what you need to do, if you are saved, is worship God. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Spend time on your knees in prayer. Spend time in fellowship with the Lord. You can never worship him enough. You can never praise him enough. And if you're like me, that's probably one of your weak points. It's quite easy, to some extent, doing a Bible study like this, live, although it's somewhat nerve-wracking, 
although you're very much running on adrenaline. But if I were to spend 40 minutes on my knees praying, if I were to spend 20 minutes on my knees praying, like Daniel would do three times a day, that's pretty tough. It's tough because the flesh is weak. The flesh wants to do what it needs to do, but is unable to do so. The spirit, of course, is willing, but the flesh is weak. So a very quick recap, looking at these first nine verses, and I will close and say this, that Revelation 22 is speaking about New Jerusalem. Revelation 22 is speaking about the new earth. The measurements for New Jerusalem, one more time, would be the equivalents of flying from London to Dallas, or flying from uh, New York to Los Angeles, and then double back two-thirds of the way or flying from New Zealand to Indonesia. The new earth will be smaller than our current earth, and the new earth will have 12 boundaries, 12 continents. And during the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, people are going to be born, they're going to die, and it won't take long for the new earth to fill up. And we get into Daniel chapter 9, which I'll look at next week, which discusses how... The increase of his government shall know no end. In other words, his government, his kingdom will continue to spread out into eternity. And we get on to the whole subject, an interesting subject of space travel. And I will offer it as a hypothesis. I'm not going to say either way whether or not I am in agreement with such a belief. But it's a very interesting belief because people are going to be filling up the earth very quickly And therefore the Lord will have to put them somewhere. And therefore you think of Jupiter, you think of Saturn, you think of Pluto, you think of Venus, you think of Mars. Why not put them there? They were built for a purpose, were they not? Which then leads into the gap theory. But I'm already ahead of myself, so I'll discuss that next week. The nations, verse 2 and 3, are going to come up to this tree, the tree of life, every month. So January, the first month of the year nation or continent number one so continent number one will come up to the tree the first month of the year and take off the fruit of the tree to somehow get everlasting life god will dispense grace via a tree it's still going to be grace because a tree in scripture is a type of christ christ died on a cursed tree christ would tell you from john 15 to abide in him he's spoken of as a plant of a tree And also Paul picks up this analogy from uh, Romans chapter 11. The nations are going to come up month after month, 12 months in a year, 12 continents, you get the idea. And they will take of the tree or take of the fruit of the tree for the healing of the nations, which is going to feed into everlasting life. I don't quite understand that, but those that are born during the millennium and need to get saved will do so via a tree. This also is going to feed into eternity, but that's another subject for next week. Along the way, you've got no more curse, verse 3, for those of us, of course, which are in New Jerusalem. The uh, throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, in reference to God the Father. A 5, 6, 7, going into verse 9, speaks about John seeing Daniel, communicating with Daniel, probably in Hebrew, and John is rebuked for worshipping Daniel or 
falling down to worship him, whereas no pope on the face of the earth would ever rebuke anyone for doing that to him. And yet John would say, John would be rebuked like Peter would rebuke Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, get up. I'm just a man as you are. But you try and get people to understand that today. You're blessed, verse 7, for keeping the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I come quick, which feeds into verse 10, which I'll pick up next week. For the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel, underscoring urgency, underscoring the need to do something now like repent. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Behold, now is accepted time. And you know what I'm saying when I make the case for getting saved. So I've already gone over time, so I will stop it there and pick up next week in verse 10 and add more material. We're not through yet with uh, Revelation 22.